We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. If something about your life is not working, you'd think you would read the signs and do something about it. However, you're also busy earning a living, running a house, and raising children. You don't want your largely comfortable and safe life to be turned upside down. So you pretend that you don't hear the messages and hope things will get better. Alternatively, you could simply ignore the call to adventure that life is asking something bigger of you, maybe twice, three times, multiple times, and redouble down on your old life. But what happens when the call to be your true self can no longer be ignored? Many of my witnesses have talked about this moment. It can involve depression, burnout, even a breakdown, and then going on to find a more authentic and whole life. But what happens in this abyss between being stuck in your old life and emerging like a butterfly out the other end? My witness today has written about her dark days, her search to understand, and her crippling depression, the terrible setbacks, and what she learned along the way. My witness is Dawn Kohler, who is an executive coach with clients in many of the leading media companies in the USA. She knows all about the stresses because she used to be an award-winning tech entrepreneur, but she sold the company that she loved and founded because of what she called self-mutiny. One day, she could not make her fingers open her car door and drive off for work. Let's go back to 1992 and your self-mutiny. It sounds really scary. What was it like? Scary is almost an underestimation for that word. What happened in 1992 was I, uh, I had three young children, mostly under the age of six. And I was running a computer company that was you know, kind of right place, right time. We were growing very quickly through the state of California and going into other areas in the U.S. And I really enjoyed my job. I loved what I was doing. I loved the pace of it. I enjoyed being on the leading edge of, of what we were doing. We were, we were you know, really sort of the first geek squad offering service on site with a four-hour repair and respond service contract. And it was very innovative and new, and we were signing up big companies. Then one day, I was going to work. The months preceding that, I had had an anxiety that was rising that I was trying to ignore. And then I pulled up to my office, and I tried to get out of the car. And I reached for the door. I tried to unlock the handle, and my fingers wouldn't move. It was truly self-mutiny in the sense that It was as if an energy arose inside of me that would not allow me out of the car. I knew I wasn't sick. I knew I was physically capable, but I couldn't move forward. So I sat in the car for a good 20, 30 minutes and fought with myself. I wanted to go in. I wanted to do, you know, grab the reports, talk to my leaders, do the same things I'd done, you know, every day before. And it just wouldn't allow me to do it. So finally, I, uh, you know, beat on the the wheel for a few times, pounded on it, said I wanted to go in. 
And this first message started to push through my mind. And it said, and it was, you know, an inaudible voice, but just very clearly came in, not in my own fruition, I, I thought at the time. And it said, this is no longer your way. And I didn't know what my way was. I only knew that I couldn't continue on that path. So the only choice I really had was to turn around and go home. And when I went home, I crawled into bed and I felt myself sinking into truly an abyss. It was such a profound feeling of emptiness, unimaginable to anything I had ever experienced. And I just lied there until I felt some sense of direction to move forward in a different way. And that didn't come for weeks. Because your answer to this is no longer your way was, I want it to be my way. Thank you. Exactly. (laughs) I was quite happy the way I was going. Again, there was anxiety going on that I wasn't clear on why I was experiencing such high anxiety, but it wasn't like I'd hit burnout. It wasn't because I didn't like what I was doing. It wasn't kind of the typical story of I just knew I wasn't supposed to be doing that anymore. That was not the case at all. It felt very much like I was being pulled in another direction that wasn't necessarily the direction I wanted to go in. So truly self-mutiny. So how did you move forward from your bed? (laughs) My husband had rummaged through the car, cleaning it out after about three weeks of me lying in bed, and he had found the card to a psychotherapist. And the reason the card was in my car in the first place is as the anxiety escalated, about a week prior to that, I'd gone to a doctor to see if there was any kind of chemical imbalance or anything that would have been causing that high anxiety. And he said, you know, there's nothing physically wrong with you, but, you know, you might consider going into psychotherapy, which wasn't an interest to me at the time. So I wadded it up and threw it in the back of the car. Uh, he came in after me, you know, in bed for three weeks and he hands me the card and he said, you know, we can't keep living like this. Please call her. So that was really the first indication. And, and it hit me in such a way that, you know, when you, when you have a truth or a direction for me anyway, it just sort of hits me right in the chest. It's like, okay, I get it. That's next step. So I called her. And it was a pretty profound experience. Tell us about psychotherapy for you? I'm assuming this is the first time you'd ever been to something like this. Absolutely. It was the first time I'd experienced psychotherapy or anything like it. And I was extremely skeptical. I didn't necessarily want to trust anybody. I was interested. I mean, I knew this was the direction, but I wanted it to be quick, efficient, and done with it. So in my (laughs) mind, it's let's have three or four sessions. Okay, help me, tell me what, you know, I need to do. I'll do it and let's get on with it. But even in that first session, she was <laughs> where I was trying to, you know, control the, uh, the dialogue. She very much was patient with me and basically said, you know, that's not how it works. So, you know, I learned the hard way that that truly isn't how it worked. Looking back, I'm, I'm amused by it because I was so adamant that one, I didn't need help. And two, if I did, I wanted it to be fast. And I really didn't even understand the waters I was about to walk into and what it all meant. The relationship itself, as you said, was quite profound. So just to give us a sense of the, the journey, because Normally, this moment is sort of skipped over and we zap forward to coming out the other end. But 
how long was arriving to, for want of a better word, coming out the other end for you? It was a solid three years yeah. to come out the other end. So yeah. my you know six, eight-week plan was quickly thrown out the window, and it was a good three-year journey. During that time, very dynamic. I mean, it was quite remarkable to me that everything I needed during that time to heal or to go to the next level of of the journey would appear. Again, I was quite, you know, skeptical at the time, but a year or two into it, it was so profound, I just really surrendered to, okay, I'm in this flow, this journey. There's an intelligence organizing this that's so far beyond my own that I just need to continue to follow the messages I was receiving. So, let's look a little bit at your relationship with your therapist whose name was Anne. Mm-hmm. Because as a therapist myself, all I can say was it was a little bit unusual. Absolutely. Tell me what was unusual about it. Well, of course, at the time, I didn't know it was unusual. I have learned quite a bit since, and one can look at that relationship and judge it one way or the other. What was happening at the time, again, I wasn't aware of it, but she was, you know, I started to bond with her. I connected to her. She listened to me with a sense of compassion that I had never known. My parents never listened to me that way. I was certainly a product of extremely sexually abusive father and an alcoholic mother. So to sit there for the first time and have somebody validate that how I felt was real, for her to even look at me with compassion and she would, when I would say certain things about, you know, my mother drunk on the couch or, you know, some of the behavior that my father had, she would just wince in pain. And I remember looking at her going, this feeling that she has for me, I did not have for myself. And I think that's really where it began, this connection of her almost emoting my own feelings. And through that, I just really developed a very deep trust and a deep bond for her. Now, I think, you know, what therapists have said one way or the other is boundaries were crossed. Up to now, everything sounds to me perfectly okay, because it's one of the jobs of therapists to feel the feelings in the room and to express them. And sometimes when I go like that, it's a bit of a shock to my clients who have sort of brushed over this piece of personal history, you know, as if it was a trip to the dentist sort of kind of thing, whereas it's something profoundly painful. So that's all fine. How are the boundaries crossed? Again, I think that from a therapeutic standpoint, it became physical in the, I was a regressed five-year-old rape victim. And that was not known to me prior to me going into therapy, trusting myself as I trusted her, as I felt like she, she could hold me in a sense, that she was there for me. I began to recall these memories of my childhood. And really began to regress to this five-year-old. Now, what's also going on at the same time is my daughter is turning five. So I am raising a five-year-old. I am in therapy becoming a five-year-old. And these memories of this abuse from my father is coming forward. So Anne at that point very much becomes the mother. 
and the mother of a five-year-old rape victim. As I came in and started, because most of these memories I was having at home, actually, with my husband, and then I would come into the sessions and tell her, you know, what has what was happening to me. And I had such a deep, deep yearning to be held. I just, I needed a woman's touch. I needed to be held. I needed to feel safe. And she gave me that. So once she started, I was telling her about it. And as I was coming in, in this situation, she embraced me and would hold me. There was nothing ever sexual about it. It was truly a maternal type of holding, a maternal, I'm safe, I'm protected. So I think from that standpoint, I don't ever regret that because I needed it so badly. I think she, therapeutically, it can be judged that she crossed some boundaries, that she actually embraced me in that way because I thought this relationship was at the cornerstone of my healing. I'm not going to judge it as she did something wrong. For me, I know I needed it at the time. Do I recommend that therapists do this? No, but. (laughs) And you had another message in this period, and the message was, let her go. Right. So during this period, I had two different messages. And this is what was so unusual about this journey for me. Because keep in mind, it's a very pragmatic business major. You know, getting messages was very unusual for somebody like me who wasn't really rooted in any kind of religion or spiritual practice. So to be waking up into these inaudible messages that were clearly directing me was quite unusual. And one of the messages during the time that I was with Anne was to let her go. So as you said, I was trying to fall asleep one night and again, it was this inaudible, let her go, came in three times. And I thought, why do I let, need to let her go? At that point, I was fully dependent on her. I had remembered the abuse. My parents were pretty much once again saying, we want nothing to do with you. You know, I'm raising these three children. My husband and I are doing the best we can to kind of keep life together. And now I've all of a sudden have to let this one person that I'm extremely dependent on go. Sure enough, the next session that I came in, I walked in and I said, where are you going? And she said, shut the door. And she told me that she was leaving her practice and going on an indefinite sabbatical. So you can imagine I am once again (laughs) feeling terribly abandoned by this one mother figure. And that was, needless to say, a very difficult session. You were an abandoned child that was about to be abandoned all over again. Correct. And when I look back, and I think this is is largely how life works, if we stay current in our circumstances, they're always providing some way of healing. And I really didn't have access to a lot of the feelings necessary around that, that original abandonment at five years old. So what we find is that our current life situations often give us these opportunities to heal by in some way reenacting to some degree these earlier pains. So when I once again abandoned, it actually just ripped off the wound that I couldn't necessarily directly access because it was so long ago in my history. And in a sense, your daughter reaching five years old was exactly the same thing because 
you know, effectively that put you in touch with being a five-year-old all over again. And, you know, here it is, circumstances have given once again this, you know, we can sit here now and think an extraordinary life experience. There we can say you were in the abyss and, you know, you fell even deeper into it. Yes, absolutely. And I think I had to because I dissociated to tolerate the abuse. So there were parts of me that I had fragmented. I had really cut myself off of key parts of me that I needed in order to go forward in my life and to bring forth what I needed to bring forth. So for me, I had to go back to that abyss. And you're right, my daughter triggered it and leaving then opened up the womb. So now I was once again, or really for the first time feeling what it was like to be a five-year-old rape victim and I need my mother and my mother is gone. Because your original, uh, your, your real mother rather than your original mother, sorry about that. I mean, this is, this is just an extraordinary little detail that I think is important to mention, that the time that this happened to you, you actually remembered the clothes you were wearing and your mother, when you asked her, did anything strange ever happen, remembered the clothes you were wearing on a particular day when your father brought you home after, I'm sorry to say it, raping you. She remembered those details and yet she closed down and said, no, no, it couldn't possibly have happened. I mean, how many mothers can remember what their daughter was wearing, I don't know, what, 40 years previously? Correct. And that's, of course, what I thought, because I have had a five-year-old daughter. And I said, you know, mom, how can you deny this? You knew what I had on. And at that point, it had been 30, 35 years. And what happened was Oprah Winfrey had that exact same week, there was an Oprah Winfrey show on false memories, where therapists were leading their patients to believe they had been abused by their fathers. And my mother grabbed onto that and said, this is the only explanation for all of this nonsense in her mind. You were led by this therapist to believe this. And of course, that's not what happened. My memories were coming while I was being intimate with my husband. They were not in therapy necessary. So it was just, again, you know, if you talk about the perfect storm, my mother was once again leaving me, my natural mother. My therapist, who I had really a maternal, a true maternal bond with, was leaving me. And uh, I was very much at that point had what would be considered a nervous breakdown. I mean, I uh, the day she left and she left the country and there was no way I could contact her, I couldn't move. My whole room was spinning. Uh, I was so far out of balance that the new therapist had come in and uh, took me straight away to a outpatient rehabilitation center for depression and anxiety. And it was really a healing center. And I spent the next six weeks there just moving through all of the emotion associated with the abuse, the abandonment of the maternal figure of my, of my own natural mother, Anne of Anne. And I can feel this is many years later that we're talking about this story, but the pain is still with us in this room at this precise moment, isn't it? It's difficult. You know, it, it's just a, it's a difficult history. And you know, we all have an inner landscape. That is part of my inner landscape. I have to say, I think that Julia, your second therapist, 
seems like a wonderful therapist. <laughs> well, she was absolutely a wonderful therapist and very, and I, you know, I still know of her today. She, she was very good. What happened before Anne left and after I received the messages to let her go, I also received another message. And the message was, when I saw her soul, I would see my own. And I did not know what that meant. And I didn't know what it meant for months, maybe a year later, but it was so profound and so real when I received it that I knew that was true. It wasn't until after I was in the hospital and I started to read everything I could about the psychotherapeutic relationship so I could find out why this hurt so bad. I mean, logically, I knew, had I only met Anne for a year, how could anybody that I knew for only a year her leaving devastate me to the extent that I was devastated. So logically, it wasn't making sense to me. And I came across Alice Miller's book on A Path to Yourself. And it talked about transferences and how she was able to use the transferences with her therapist to access you know, childhood feelings and emotions that had long been abolished, that were fragmented in ourselves, but not within our conscious awareness. And that when she used the transference and she empowered herself with them, that became her path to healing. And so that's the path that I took. I recognized when I got that book, I thought, this is the way out of this depression and out of this misery. This is the way to healing, not to try to cut off or not feel the way I felt for Anne, to not minimize it and say, it's ridiculous. It's a therapist I knew for a year, but to embrace it and to say, this is an experience that truly is a gift of healing but I've got to use it. I've got to feel it. I've got to let all those emotions come forward. And your attitude was, why had nobody ever told me about transference before? Oh, I was so mad. <laughs> I was so mad. Because here I'd been in therapy for quite some time at that point, and, and I had been having them from the beginning. But since they were never explained to me, I couldn't really utilize them as my own tool. And the therapist was saying, well, you know, it's a therapist tool. We're supposed to be the ones that pick up on these transferences, which, you know, I was very well skilled at not showing people my emotions and very well skilled at judging my own emotions, whether I thought that they were reasonable or enough to share. So I was suffering quite dearly, even in the time that I was with Anne and having such strong emotion, not knowing that these emotions were really a backlog of a lifetime of emotion that, that had not been expressed. Had I had that information earlier, I, I, I think I could have progressed much quicker through it. So when the therapist feels something and the client isn't, that is transference. We're looking for those feelings, we're open to them, and we express them. And, you know, I will sometimes say to my clients, I'm feeling terribly angry, but I wonder who else is feeling angry, sort of mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, you know, invite them to take it back. Because, you know, I don't really have any attachment to these things. But when I feel something unusual inside, you know, I listen to it. That's the training that I've had. And I think it's really interesting that actually maybe us therapists should explain it more to our clients. I would be interested because I think a lot of people are very resistant to group therapy. But you've had individual therapy and group therapy. And the group therapy was profoundly helpful for you. So in what way was it helpful to you? You know, I think it's the attitude that one goes into therapy. Everything truly is a reflection. And whether it's the reflection your therapist is showing you or what you're projecting onto them, 
or whether it's a group. In a group, you just have more personalities to come together with. So it's going to be more dynamic. You're going to have more people in which you connect with because they share positive traits and certainly people that annoy you because perhaps you're projecting something you don't like about yourself onto them. But if you go into these groups, understanding that we're all such reflections of one another, I think they can be incredibly beneficial. You made an observation from your group therapy work, which I thought was terribly interesting, which was that the group divided into two categories. Those who were trying to prove they were worthy, Dawn, for example, you know, who are overachieving, then, you know, they're being profiled by journalists because they're so wonderful, they've won awards, and somehow they still need more awards, and the ones that are trying to prove themselves worthless. So tell me about the two ends of that spectrum. You know, that was such a fascinating part of the group dynamic because I was in a healing center that was, you know, basically an outpatient psychiatric hospital. And it was both in and outpatient psychiatric hospitals. So there was many people that were staying there. But in my group, there was seven women. Those seven women were sort of split in the middle. We had a very successful executive vice president of IBM who had recently had a nervous breakdown. There was a movie producer there that had had an Academy Award movie and uh, <laughs> just previous years who had recently attempted suicide. There was myself who was you know, the CEO of a computer company at the time. We also had a prostitute. We had a pyromaniac. And we had a woman that could barely keep a job because she had such extreme anxiety kind of popping in and out of one administrative type of job or another. And as we started to reveal ourselves and as we continued to talk, it was so clear that we were all acting out of the same wound. Everybody felt like they were worthless at their core. Everybody thought that they were really just not lovable individuals. It's just that half the room was trying very hard to prove that we were worthy, and the other half was trying very hard to prove that they weren't. And it was quite an astonishing day when we you know, looked across the table at each other and recognized we're all the same person. We're just acting out our wound differently. Wow, that is really profound. It really was. And I think in my work since as an executive coach, it has been amazing to me how many very highly successful women are still operating from that same wound. They're very much on a performance track trying to prove that they are worthy and that they are lovable. And it is amazing how productive we can be when we're coming from that wound, but it's also, it has its limits and it, it eventually catches up to everybody. Now, all of this is in your book called The Messages, and you don't really, or maybe do you come down on saying where the messages are coming from? Because Julia, your therapist, has one idea, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Do you have a sense of where these messages were coming from? I think that there were two types of messages. The first messages that were leading me, I think, was very much my own inner soul. And I think at the very core of our being, we have that soul that is always trying to heal us. And I think that soul is connected to all souls. I think that is part of our spark, our piece of God that we're expressing here on this earth. And I, I do believe it's calling us back. And it was calling me back to return to the essence of who I was as a writer, certainly not a computer 
executive, but as a writer. And it was bringing me home to me. And I do think that that voice of the soul is, you know, our own voice of God. So I do believe that's where those were coming from, my own inner soul, my wisest self. As it came along, it was very clear to me that I was receiving a calling, a spiritual calling, because the messages were leading me not just back to myself, but back to some type of communication. And that became very clear. One of the messages was to write the book. Actually, several of the messages was to write the book. And the process, which is very much the hero's journey, if you will, is an awakening process. And towards the end of it, the awakening part of it, which went into energy systems and I learned about kundalini energies and chakras because these systems, this expansion of consciousness started to happen quite rapidly. And when you have those kind of experiences, you're really being prepared for some kind of communication that is just beyond your own soul. Historically, these things have happened. I was with one woman during the peak point of it, which was this kundalini energy that was expanding my mind quite quickly. And she sat me down and explained it to me and showed me through different texts, you know, the Buddhists call it this, the Christians call it this, you're in the dark night of the soul here. And this prepares us for some kind of encounter, which in fact it did. I wasn't looking for that. It was a very difficult experience. But over the course of three nights, I was awoken, I was told to write, and I was writing down messages. Those messages during those three nights, I think, were universal messages that just came through me for whatever reason. That was quite different than the individual messages that I think we all received to help us heal that split between ourselves and our soul or our connection to that divine source. But the three nights that felt quite prophetic in that it was more from a divine source versus my own. And you did end up meeting Anne again. I did. So after that occurred, those three nights, where in essence, those messages were really relaying that what was happening to me is happening to all of us to some extent. So I do think where we are in the beginning of a time of profound evolution, and it has begun. So that hero's journey, those stages that we all kind of go through, depending on what your life circumstances are, I believe is very much at the, on the rise right now. So that was depicting that. Once that was done, I wrote that down and I was still not sure how the journey was going to end because I hadn't seen my soul in Anne's yet. And I hadn't seen Anne in two years. And there was no indication that I ever would. And it was a couple months later, I woke up into the message to go to the big trees. And I didn't know what that meant, but I woke up into it several days in a row. So I talked to my husband. I said, I'm supposed to go to the big trees. That meant big sir to me. But I somehow rationalized that it was really the sequoias. Anyway, ends up that I told Judith, I'm going on this trip to the sequoias. And she said, no, go to Big Sur. So I went to Big Sur to a place called Esalen Institute, which is a beautiful center there for human development workshops. And I went hoping that I would see Anne. I got there and sure enough, the day after I arrived, she arrived too. So uh, she had been traveling in from, she had been in Thailand and had gone through Canada and had was there for a month. And that was her first night there. So she and I did meet up again after two years of 
hearing nothing. And was that healing for you? It was extremely painful and remarkably healing. Because I think what happened there is I did have the experience where I saw my soul in hers. And what had happened during the course of the time that she left and the time that we met, I had gone through all those transferences for her and I had been through the anger. I had been through the sadness. I had felt those feelings. And it was really like I had just cleared out all the gunk that was keeping me from seeing myself. And there was a moment when I saw her and I just saw this very soft, compassionate, feminine spirit. And it was full of, you know, just love and faith and compassion. And I recognized it as my own. I was able to own that as me and not her. And from that point on, I was really free of the relationship. It was no longer a projection. It was something I saw, a reflection in her that became me. So one of the profound changes was a change of career. You became a writer first and foremost, rather than a computer. I'm going to use the word nerd. I hope you don't mind. Not at all. And you also discovered that you were attracted to women as well. So this is a real complete change in your life. (laughs) It was a 180, yes. I went from uh, being married to a man, and now I am very happily engaged to a woman. So it's not surprising, really, that you sort of wanted to ignore all the signs beforehand, That because your life is profoundly different from how it was before. What would you say to other people who are sitting here at the moment, and they sort of deep down half know that their life has to change, but actually they're completely and utterly scared because they don't want their life to profoundly change. I would say it's worth it. I am infinitely happier and more at peace than I ever could have been in that other life. I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing, so I have true fulfillment and my life has meaning. I am much more available to my children and to my partner and to myself. I was really mimicking a person. I wasn't being who I am. And there is, it's very limiting when you're mimicking a person. You can't, you just can't take that very far. You're never going to catch flow with that. You're never going to really be successful. So it's difficult, but again, uh, uh, the rewards are just immense. And you have a profound friendship with your ex-husband, don't you? Profound is the best word. You know, he's, he's always been in my corner. We had one of the nicest divorces I've ever heard about. We settled in 15 minutes at the table. There were no ill words. He's been my date at both of my daughter's weddings, and he is still my best friend from high school. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
let me tell you about my Substack newsletter because I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I hope that as it grows, it's become a shared space somewhere you can tell me about your thoughts, suggest ideas for the new podcast episodes as well. We have all sorts of interesting topics that I've covered on it recently, like closure, I want space, how vulnerable is your marriage to an affair? So lots of useful advice. And if you'd like to sign up, you can do so by going to themeaningfullife.substack.com. Please do sign up. Details will be in the show notes, as will how you can get involved in the program by sending in a dilemma. And I have to say thank you very much to the person who sent this one in. My husband of over 20 years together and I are in the process of divorce. It's been so upsetting to say the least. I found out about his affair three and a half years ago. We did go to couples therapy and I have been in individual therapy, various healers, groups to work through my grief and hurt. He wouldn't commit to the relationship, nor would he put the effort in to do any of the work. I have done all the heavy lifting. He won't discuss the affair or the lifestyle he led while travelling, but I can assume he'd been indulging his sexual fantasies for a long time. We have four kids who are in my sole custody, and he has wiped his hands clean of everything, dumping it all on me. But then we're all together as a family, and it's great. He throws me crumbs and sexual innuendo, but never takes any action to move home or call off the divorce. He was never a deep person, but I truly loved my family, devoted my life to my kids and my husband. I want honesty and emotional intimacy. I want him to open up and see this beautiful family he's left and how much hurt and pain we've all suffered. He moved out three years ago, but always had one foot in and one foot out. I don't want to give up on him, though. I feel it's just a dead end. I came from divorced parents, and we were never going to divorce and talked about that early on. I've done everything and more to save this marriage. However, I'm emotional. I can't sit back and keep watching him just be this man who he isn't, or maybe I just never knew him. I really see the good in people and in him, and deep down, he's so lost. I love my kids and it's hurting them, and that makes me upset too. Any suggestions on what would be beneficial or books to read, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. So, Dawn, what were your thoughts when you read that? It feels very stuck to me. I feel for her. It is a extremely difficult situation to be in as a mother, and clearly she loves her husband. But my first thought was, what kind of mother does she want to be showing her children? And if she could identify what kind of mother she really wants to be seen as, I think that can start to be her North Star to where she might need to get to. There's a whole lot of focus that she has on him and wanting him to change and wanting him to see the goodness that uh, she sees in him. And I would certainly, if she was a client and I was coaching her, I I would certainly ask her to try to find that within herself. It's interesting, isn't it? We can give a lot of kindness and we can see the good in other people, but we find it sometimes very hard to do that to ourselves. Yes, I think this is a really good example of looking outward instead of looking inward because she is very loving. She's very patient, extremely devoted, and there's a lot of compassion there. And I think when she can begin to give those things to herself 
and perhaps let go of the idyllic life that she wants to have with him, I think she can start to transform this story into something really powerful that will eventually lead to her getting the love that she deserves. But there's a lot of letting go that needs to happen, I think, I think for her. Because ultimately, when we're in a, a situation like this, there are effectively three choices. We can um, complain to our partner about the behavior that we don't like about them over and over again, and that generally sours the relationship. So we carry on, but there is carping and defensiveness and you sort of know that telling your partner for the hundredth time that you don't like something is not going to change anything. They're probably going to dig their heels in further. So option number one is to continue as you are complaining. Option number two is to leave the relationship. And option number three is to accept where you are and see if you can live with the acceptance. Those are really the only three options. So can you accept the behavior? Probably not. Do you want to leave? Probably not. Do you want to keep on complaining about how he's behaving? Probably yes, but that's actually what's trapping you. So can you accept that he's going to go off and do his thing? You don't want to be part of that relationship with him, but you are happy to have family time together? Or is that just too painful if you don't think that he's going to come back? And if that's the case, if it is too painful to have family time together at the moment, then don't have family time at the moment. But unfortunately, those are the three options. You can either accept him as he is, you can end the relationship, or you can keep on complaining. Am I being too brutal, do you think, Dawn? Because I'm feeling very brutal at this precise moment. What do you think? Well, I think at the core of what you're saying is she can't control him. You know, he's going to do what he's going to do. And there's a lot of hope that she has that he's going to change. So I don't know if she has to leave him entirely, although I think that would be healthy, but she does have children and he's going to be in their lives. So I would entertain possibly a hybrid of all of this and redefine the relationship with him, set some good boundaries around it so that she is less impacted And to really understand and accept, there is acceptance that has to happen here. And I think the acceptance is she cannot change the situation by changing him. She can only change the situation by changing her. Yeah, she can say, I don't want the sexual innuendo. And if he gives it, turn your back on it. Exactly. And if that still doesn't work and he grabs you, then I'm sorry you don't want him in the house with you. He can see the children somewhere else in his own time and you don't have to be there. So you can set some sort of boundaries like that. Can you change him? No. And he actually, I'm sorry to say it, has no desire to change, does he? He's quite, as far as he's concerned, this in-betweenness is actually acceptable to him. Yes, it's working for him. Can you make this in-betweenness work for you? Can you accept the in-betweenness and make it work for you so that you have the family time together, but you don't have the sexual innuendo? You will find out. But the one thing you can't have is 
him back exactly as you want him, appreciating the family and wanting to be your loving husband. That's just unfortunately not on the cards. Right. And, you know, his behavior is baiting her a bit. So he's keeping her hooked. And that's where I think she needs to look at this and say, you know, I need to take the hook out. These are behaviors that give her hope. He knows they give her hope and sort of string her along. And the chances are, you know, first of all, he's not going to change, nor would you really want a man like that. This woman is capable of having a really loving, compassionate relationship. And as soon as she lets go of the fear, and again, kind of that idyllic idea of having the family back together, the family needs to be redefined. You can have a beautiful family with your children by being the kind of mother that I know you want to be for them. And your relationship with your kids is going to grow and really flourish when you let go of this dynamic that you're in with your husband. I would focus on, again, better relationship with yourself and a better relationship with the kids. And that will lead to having a really good relationship with probably somebody other than your husband. So if you'd like us to give you a second and a third opinion, because we've got two opinions here, <laughs> go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find a form to send in a letter to us as well. So Dawn, thank you very much for sharing your journey with us and for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? I would say just being alive and sharing myself as authentically as I can with others. I think that's really what we're here to do. So, you know, sometimes that's being with my grandson, who I absolutely adore beyond measure. And sometimes it's being with my partner and sometimes it's a client, but it's, it's every day and it's in every encounter. There is so much meaning in just being alive. Unfortunately, this is where we have to end the conversation. But if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, the conversation will continue. In the bonus material, we'll be looking at the top five pieces of advice for successful women. So if you're trying to prove your self-worth to the world, Dawn, as a recovering um, uh, <laughs> self-worther or lack of self-worther, will give you her five top pieces of advice. And actually, I'm going to pull out what from her journey I think are the really important lessons as, as well that uh, you can apply. So if you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. <laughs>